0: As always, it is so good to be back home, and it's really nice to see some wonderful old faces, and, and I do mean old. You, you <laughs> some of you're welcome. Some of you have really been aging since I've been gone. <laughs> uh, this place is so full of really good memories. When we were singing that song, Be Thou My Vision, there's a line in there which uh, says that uh, I'm thy true son, and every time I sing that anywhere, I remember my wife standing beside me singing, and she would sing it, I'm your true daughter. Doesn't quite fit the meter of the song, but it a uh, good time. We're going to be looking at what your bulletin says are some sticky questions about Jesus, and uh, just kind of before we jump into that, have you ever been disappointed by a restaurant, or a book, or a movie, or something that didn't quite live up to its hype. Um, you'd been really looking forward to this great thing that you'd heard about, and it was a kind of meh. Okay, we, we've all had that experience, which basically says, if you're gonna make a big promise, you'd better deliver big, right? Well, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels that tell us the life of Jesus, and it starts out with an absolute blockbuster of a promise in the first verse. Mark starts out his book saying that his book is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he's promising good news, number one, And he's saying that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the one promised throughout uh, Scripture, and that he was the Son of God. And then Mark sets about from here, proving his case. And he does it in rapid fire, hitting us with a whole string of evidences that what he's talking about is good news for us, that Jesus really is the one who is promised in Scripture, and that he is absolutely the Son of God. You want to see how he did it? Okay, well, if you've got a Bible with you, I brought mine, I don't, I don't know what the rest, or your phone, whatever you're, you're working there. You can read through the first chapter of Mark, and he starts out talking about John the Baptist as Predicted in scripture as the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist makes the announcement that someone after is coming after him who's greater than him. And then we get the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we're told that he goes out teaching and he is sharing good news with people. And then we see Jesus recruiting his first four disciples. Four fishermen, uh, Simon, Andrew, James, John gets these people to follow him. And then there's a whole string of miraculous healings that Jesus does. And some of them are mentioned specifically, and some of them are just, we're told that he's healing lots of people. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, Jesus has become so popular that He doesn't dare go into any of the towns or villages because he's just mobbed by the crowds. So he's staying out in very remote areas. So the beginning of the story of Jesus goes like gangbusters. I mean, this is a really great introduction, a great beginning, a great start. Everything is going along marvelously. Turn the page into chapter two and now Mark continues kind of in the same vein, except he's gonna give us five incidents in the life of Jesus, right one after the other, in which people raised questions. Always happens when somebody does something out of the ordinary or unusual or whatever, people start asking questions about it, right? We're curious, we wanna know, you know, is this the real deal? And the questions that people were asking, some of them were objecting, Some of them were just curious, but they were wanting to find out, who is this man? Is he really the guy that Mark promised back in that first verse? Is he really Messiah? Is he really bringing good news? Is he really the Son of God, or is he a fake? Or is he just a good moral teacher? Is he some kind of a prophet? Who is he? What's he about? Why did he come? Ready, let's look at these five incidents. And the first one is a very familiar story and it's kind of a humorous one. It's told in three of the four gospels. Although Matthew, for some reason, doesn't tell us the story, the part about letting the paralyzed guy down through the hole in the roof, which whenever I've told this story to kids, that's the best part of the story to them. Man, wouldn't that be cool? Not if it's your house, but so this paralyzed guy is is brought dropped through the hole in the roof, and Jesus then says the most remarkable thing. He says to him, "Son, your sins are forgiven," and it was stunning to everybody because that wasn't the reason that the, his friends had brought him to see Jesus. They wanted him to be healed of his paralysis. But Jesus always cut to the core of an issue. And when he said this, he stunned everybody, and he raised all kinds of questions in the minds of some of the teachers of the law who had come to check him out. And their reaction silently was, wait, who can forgive sins except God? Mark tells us some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now Jesus knew what they were thinking and so he asks them a question in response and he says, okay, which would be easier for me to say to this fellow down here, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now obviously He had just said, your sins are forgiven, but how could anybody see whether that actually happened or not? The uh, teachers of the law obviously didn't believe it had happened. So Jesus then says, okay, just so that you will know that I have the authority and the power and the right to forgive sins, get up and walk. And the guy got up and walked and went home. And that incident tells us one of the purposes why Jesus came was to bring us God's forgiveness. There are lots of things we think we need from God and we would like from God. That man really wanted healing of his paralysis. He ended up getting that, but what he needed most and what we have all needed most is God's forgiveness. That, folks, is really good news as to why Jesus came. That's something to hang on to. That's a hard thing for a lot of us. Sometimes, even though we have heard that, kind of given assent to it, it's still kind of, we have a hard time with the idea that God really has forgiven me for that rotten thing I did. And we often have problems with other people who we have been told we should forgive just as God has forgiven us And man, there are some people in my life who are just hard to forgive. But that's one of the reasons God sent Jesus. And Mark starts with that. So while you noodle on that a little bit, all the way through his gospel, Mark keeps moving along at a hurried pace. He moves on to the next episode, which is Jesus encountering a tax collector, a fellow named Levi, also known as Matthew. And uh, Jesus tells him to um, come and follow him. Levi gets up and leaves his uh, tax business. And that evening, he hosts a big party for Jesus and his disciples and a whole bunch of his friends, other tax collectors. And most translations also say the crowd was a bunch of sinners. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation just lumps them all together as disreputable people. And you probably know that tax collectors in that society were really, really, really looked down on. They were hated and despised because they were working for the hated Roman government, and they were dishonest. They kept cheating people. So the question came up, why does Jesus eat with those people? And Jesus answered, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus gave this answer He says, People who are healthy don't need a doctor, just people who are sick. I came to call the sinners, I came to reach the disreputable people, I came to bring God's forgiveness that Mark had talked about in the first episode. I came to bring God's forgiveness not just to the nice respectable church folks, but to the outsiders, disreputable folks, the folks that maybe the nice people don't feel comfortable hanging out with. And boy, is that also good news because it means we didn't have to achieve a certain standard of respectability in order to earn God's forgiveness, it means Jesus came to forgive us while we were yet sinners. Hang on to that one for a minute, because the third episode, Mark gets into real quickly, is a little bit esoteric, and it has to do with the practice of fasting. There were some people who came to Jesus, and they wanted to know why is it that the disciples now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That, that means going without food as a religious observance uh, to kind of focus all of your uh, corpuscles on, on something spiritual, okay? And uh, it was a discipline. And so people came and asked Jesus and one of the other gospels in telling this story says that these were the, some of the disciples of John who came to ask this. They said, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, Jesus gives two answers. The first one was kind of just a quick answer to the the specific question. And he uses, as he often did, a little illustration. He says, well, if there's a big wedding feast going on, the friends of the bridegroom aren't going to fast while the celebration is going on, and the bridegroom is there. Now, Jesus was likening himself to the groom in this illustration. Just want to make sure you're all catching on. It seems obvious the people who were there at the moment got the point real quickly. I'm never quite sure with this crowd, so I'm... So, and Jesus says, but when the bridegroom is gone, then they can fast. Okay, took care of that issue and that question. But then Jesus expanded the thing significantly by saying something that at first sounds totally unrelated. He says, no one takes a piece of unshrunken cloth and sews it onto an old garment. And no one takes new wine and puts it into an old wineskin. Now, I'm not really up on the what happens with wine and and uh, you know it, as it ages i could ask a chemistry teacher you know to maybe explain that but when i was a kid in elementary school up in northern california near santa cruz all of us boys wore blue jeans long legged blue jeans somehow the way levi strauss made the things it didn't take very long before the knees gave out and this was way before it became cool to wear ripped jeans I mean, you know you didn't go out and buy jeans that had already been torn to shreds, you know. And my mother, being the very fastidious woman that she was, wanted to make sure that I wasn't going around with my knees sticking out, so she bought patches. And she taught me how to sew them on, more or less. And I noticed that one of the patches said a piece of paper on, on that was stapled onto them. The hardest part of the whole job was getting that dang staple out of the... the the patches but uh, it said it, they were pre-shrunk and i asked my mom what is what's that well uh, by that time i'd figured out that when you got a new pair of jeans it took several lo- rounds through the laundry before they shrunk down to fit you they could pre-shrink the lousy patches but they wouldn't pre-shrink the jeans yet <laughs> but so if you had a pair of old jeans and you took a an unshrunk patch and sewed it on there. Sooner or later, it's going to rip apart. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to teach anybody about good laundry practices. What he was saying was, in having just referred to himself as the bridegroom at a celebration, he was saying he had come to do something new in this world. He was not just coming to tweak the old ways of doing things, the old ways of believing, the old ways of living. But he was coming to do something brand new. And that's something, we sang about it, about how Jesus has given us new life. And we sometimes, particularly those of us who've been around for a a while in the church, we kind of take it for granted maybe, but Jesus Christ in our life does something different from the world's way of doing stuff. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and he says, don't let the world make you conform to its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so sometimes we forget that what God wants to do in our lives is to make us different, better, Jesus said, he came to give us life abundantly. And sometimes we kind of look around and say, well, my life is kind of same old, same old. I'm not, where's all this abundant stuff? Maybe we need to go back to some basics in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And while you're thinking about that one, Mark moves on to the fourth episode, which uh, involves another ancient practice which was the observance of the Sabbath, that Jesus and his disciples were walking along and the Pharisees said to them, look, why are they, Jesus' disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And what Jesus' disciples were doing was as they walked along the path, they were pulling off stalks of grain and eating it. And uh, that was perfectly legal to do that because under Jewish law, a farmer could not reap all the way up to the edge of his property, but he had to leave a certain amount along there for travelers, strangers, passers-by, hungry people who wanted to help themselves to something real close to the path. So that wasn't the problem, but it was that the disciples were doing this on the Sabbath, the day when no work was supposed to be done. And Jesus responded to this question, First of all, he told an incident from the life of David, the greatest king in Israel, who had done something far more drastic than just grab a few pieces of uh, grain, but then that led him into saying, it's important for you to know that the Sabbath was made for people, not people made for the Sabbath. That's a huge distinction, that the Sabbath regulations, a day of rest, a day of worship, was made for our benefit, not the other way around. God didn't, you know, when he created people, didn't say, oh, by the way, folks, I've got this Sabbath day once a week where, um, you know, I'm expecting you to follow all these rules here because that's really important to me. No, he has provided both with the idea of a day of rest as well as all of the other regulations, guidelines, commandments, instructions that we've got in this book were given for our benefit not as challenges for us to try to live up to that can be so hard for us to understand God as a loving father who is providing for our well-being rather than being a giant spoil sport in the sky who's trying to end our fun. And while you think on that one, we've come to the end of chapter two. Now, that's kind of unfortunate in a way. Back in the 12th century, there was a fellow who put the chapter divisions into the Bible, did it in a Latin Bible. It was the only one around that he had. And uh, just to make it easier to find things, some of the chapter divisions are a little unfortunate, and I think this is one of them, because if I had been there looking over his shoulder, I said, don't end it here, the next episode really belongs with these four but I wasn't there. So you've got to look at chapter 3, and the first six verses tell us an incident again on the Sabbath, but this time it's a little different than the others. The others were questions and things that arose from out of the things Jesus was doing or saying. This one was a setup, and we're told that on the Sabbath in the synagogue, some of them We're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he could heal him on the Sabbath. The him is a fellow who was there in the synagogue who had a shriveled, withered hand. And so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And the next sentence in there is the one time in the New Testament where we're told about Jesus getting mad because he knew, well, this question that he asked was not a hypothetical or a theoretical or philosophical question about is it better to do this or that because he knew what those guys were plotting already. And the the final verse of this episode, verse 6, tells us that after they were done in the synagogue, these people who had set up this little incident went out and began plotting how they were going to kill him. So Jesus was having them compare, healing this man with a useless hand compared with the evil they were plotting to have him killed. They remained silent, and the next verse tells us Jesus healed the guy. And they went out and began their plot. And Mark included this little incident to make it very, very clear that of all those other things that Jesus said is his purpose. He came to bring forgiveness. He came for all people, even the disreputable folks. He came, what was the point about the fasting? Is anybody paying attention? All of those good things Jesus said that he came to, Mark said that Jesus said he came to do, were all leading up to our call to do good in this world. That we aren't called just to worship God, just to enjoy the good celebration, the good things he's done, the new life that he has provided. We're called to be Christ's people and to live and to share and to love as he did. That when we finish our Sabbath gathering, are we uh, likely to go out? Well, I don't think anybody's plotting on going out and murdering somebody right after church, but unless they get in your way on the parking lot and then then it's a whole other. But are we actively thinking as we walk out of here Based on what I've heard, based on what I've sung, based on how we've prayed, is there somebody in my world that I could do good for, that I could show God's love to, that I could care for, that I could be friendly to? Is that on the frontal lobe of our brain as we live our lives seeking to be God's people in this broken world? The book of Hebrews has a little warning in the first verse of of the second chapter. For this, I'm going to try to get it right. The writer of the Hebrews says, We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. You know, that's not a bad reminder at the end of a sermon. He goes on to say that in paying careful attention to what we have heard, the warning is that we not allow ourselves to drift away. Now, the word that is used there doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament for the drift away, but it was commonly used in many other um, ancient Greek literature and writings. And it basically means the idea of allowing something to get lost out of neglect. And that's something that happens to all of us in various areas of our life. If you ever said, where did I leave my glasses? Or or where are my keys? Where's the TV remote? Where's my phone? Um, there are things that we we get busy doing stuff and we let something slide. The writer of the Hebrews is saying we must take care not to let that happen to our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not a warning to say don't deny the faith. Don't become reprobate. Don't go out and rob a bank. It's not warning us against anything. It's saying, pay close attention that you don't let yourself drift to be blown aside. That it is so easy for us to take for granted things we have heard a lot. It takes some intentional effort to really hang on to and grow in the purposes that Jesus Christ has for us in bringing us new life, in bringing us wholeness and love and forgiveness. And all of that, folks, is the best news any of us could ever hear. Let's pray. Father, you have provided so much good for us. Help us to not let it drift, but to be alert and awake and thankful and seeking to grow in the love that you have provided for us. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.